On Cinema Smorgasbord presents How Do You Do Fellow Kids, we discuss the life and film career of the always unique character actor Steve Buscemi. On this episode, we're talking about Terry Zweigoff's adaptation of Daniel Klaus's darkly comedic comic, Ghost World. Welcome to How Do You Do, Fellow Kids. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is the fussy guy, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I'm so fussy, Doug. I'm, I'm really fussy. A fuss bucket is what I, that's do, how usually I do you know what? To you, you, do you know what I'm fussing about today, Doug? Tell me, please. Well, uh, my, sugar, well. <laughs> my sugar was feeling a bit low last night, so I decided to scarf on some caramel popped corn, mm-hmm. and I bit on a kernel. Now, I've done that a million times, Doug. I don't sure. know about you. I've bit at my fair share of kernels. This one hurt. A little more than usual, but I didn't think oh, about no. it. And then today, I took a drink of cold water, and my mouth hurt crazy bad. Oh, and, uh, no. Bada bing, bada boom. I split a molar in half. So uh, now I got half a molar in the back of my mouth. That's fun. Got a whole ass exposed nerve back there. That's a whole thing. So yeah, that's where I'm at. And uh, here's a fun thing. Um, the term emergency dentistry, which suggests to me you're open. Mm-hmm. Turns out it has nothing to do with that. It just means they're willing to see you on short notice. It doesn't mean that they have office hours on the weekend. Liam. So that's a good time. It seems to me, Liam, and maybe I'm just uh, projecting a little bit, but I think listeners who have been listening, you know, chronologically to this podcast might agree. Sure. Yes. Um, that you are falling apart physically. Yeah. Like it's your unbelievable. Body is, it's just you're crashing and burning. I yeah. I hit, I hit. 43, right? Mm-hmm. I had to do the math to even remember how old I am. Absolutely. Hit 43, <laughs> and my body was just like, well, it's been a good run, but I, I think we're done here. Wasn't even that good of a run when you think about it. No, it was pretty. I'm pretty. <laughs> I got to say, it's been pretty good, actually. I'm pretty pretty solid. But, you know, uh, yeah, no, it's been. And, it, you know, I okay, it's worth saying that it's been a, a decline for a bit, right? Mm-hmm. But I will say, like, the way that I've declined in the sense of like the pandemic, you know, like get put sure. some put some weight on, not doing as much exercise, that sort of thing. You know what I mean? That doesn't have to do with your fucking teeth, Doug. Right? That's like true. they can't be related. I don't I don't care how much of a uh, of a oat brained fitness influencer you are. You can't tell oat-brained. me that I'm, that I'm <laughs> that I'm eating too much uh you know, carbs or I'm having too much Diet Coke and that's when my tooth broke. I just feel like I shouldn't say that because we someone this will be their one episode they listen to and they're like I'm gonna write an email actually <laughs> Diet Coke did fuck your tooth up it probably burned away the enamel no, uh, that's fair, but that's fair. Um, you should be drinking more milk right calcium in the milk that'll strengthen your bones and teeth are bones that's my understanding yeah that all makes sense to me uh, Liam uh, we should mention that that this. You've been ill for quite a while. A bit. Uh, you're you're addressing certain parts of those illnesses. It's probably better that this tooth cracking occurred now rather than a month ago when you were a little bit more miserable. Yeah, I don't think if it happened a month ago, I could even get it worked on because my, my bronchitis was so crazy. Right. I don't know if I could have stopped coughing long enough for them to do whatever weird dental surgery they need to do to my messed up tooth. Liam, Daniel Radcliffe rides eternal on the Fury Road in the trailer for <laughs> Miracle Workers End Times. This is an article from the AV Club talking about the new season of the television show Miracle Workers, which is a show that you have seen before, but I have not. But you have explained it to me. 
every season of this show has uh, some of the same actors, including Daniel Radcliffe and Steve Buscemi, but they're in a different story. Every season is a new story. Is that correct? This is like the American Horror Story thing, right? Like they yeah. Do that for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I watched season one and it seemed cool and funny. And then I, when they announced the season two, I was like, how do you do that? And you do it by doing something else entirely. Right, exactly. I guess the, the there's it's three actors that are in every season, Daniel Radcliffe, Steve Buscemi, and Geraldine Viswanathan. Um, and I, again, I've not seen it. I think the first season involved Steve Buscemi as God. This season involves a post-apocalyptic future in the style of the Mad Max series of films. I've seen the trailer for it, and it really does capture that kind of... Um, the, the look and feel of specifically Fury Road very well, but, you know, in a comedic setting. Now, Liam, have you watched the trailer for this? <laughs> no, Doug, I have not. And you're well aware I have not watched it. Um, but you know what? I am excited to check it out. Yeah, well, you should. I mean, you really should because I did ask you to well before <laughs> <laughs> recording time. Uh, it, it, it looks actually very funny. This is the first... Thing I've seen from this series where I was like, you know what? I really do want to see this outside of the fact that I like Daniel Radcliffe and I like Steve Buscemi, obviously. Um, and maybe it's also the recent viewing of Weird has gotten me more in the mood to watch Daniel Radcliffe do more comedic stuff. I did enjoy that movie. Did you enjoy uh, Weird, Liam? I thought it was great. I thought he, well, I thought it was great in the way that I mean, which is I had a lot of fun with it. Right. Uh, I don't know it's the best movie of the year or anything crazy like that. Um, I've seen it on a few year-end best of lists. I Leo. think it's just a little too long. It, it's, you know, I, people have described it as an extended sketch, and I guess that that's true. But I mean, literally uh, so, right? Because it was based on right. a sketch. But, but I think that's a little unfair. Like, I do think there's stuff going on, but it's just a little too long, Doug. I, I think they should have edited it a little more aggressively. But I think he's very good in it. I will say, though, um, this isn't the first thing I've enjoyed him in. I, I, I like him in other things. Sure. Uh, and I and I and even the things I don't like, I appreciate his efforts to establish himself as not Harry Potter. Yeah. Not, not just because of, you know, the fact that uh, the creator of Harry Potter is now an embarrassment to humankind. What? No, I'll, I haven't heard about this. Why don't you tell me? Yeah, no, I'm good. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, but also just as an actor, right? Like, he had this iconic role, which is great, and I don't think he regrets being Harry Potter, but you do want to move on. You do want to be someone else, and you don't you want to be that on. farting corpse, right? Yeah. You want to be the guy. I haven't seen Guns Akimbo. Uh, I, I felt there was some really bad timing with something the director was saying when that movie was about to come out. I don't know if you recall. Um, but uh, But he's been working with a lot of very talented people. I know you're a Daniels disliker. A hater, even. Stop, um, stop. <laughs> but he does work with a lot of really interesting people. He 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 takes chances in ways that an actor of his caliber, an actor who has made as much money as he has, yeah. probably doesn't have to. Yeah, well, I'm sure he made some money for doing this, but taking on this ludicrous Weird Al role in this, in this you know, over-the-top joke <laughs> In a made-for-Roku movie? I mean, he made some money, I'm sure. Yeah, but... <laughs> yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, it, I'm sure it was something, but it, it's still a risk, right? And I'm sure there are a lot of people who just would have said no, but he yeah. did it, and I think he did a great job. Liam, over at Looper.com, which is sort of like a, a um, uh, aggregate site where they just kind of put together lots of lists and shit like that, they have made a list of every Steve Buscemi movie ranked worst 
to best. And when it says every, they mean every, Liam, except, uh, no, not every. It's only 30. <laughs> we know Steve Buscemi's done a lot more movies than that. Uh, but it does have a lot of the kind of heavy hitters. I'm just going to read the top five. According to Looper, the top five Steve Buscemi movies ever are number five, The Death of Stalin, which we covered on this very show. Number four, Monsters, Inc., which we have yet to cover. Number three, Ghost World, which I think we're going to be covering pretty soon. <laughs> number two, Reservoir Dogs. And number one, Fargo. Both of those we've yet to cover on the show. It's one of those, you know, you got to spread out the really heavy hitters, and those are two of the biggest ones. Liam, your thoughts on this list? Top five Steve Buscemi roles of all time. I, it's, you know, I haven't done an official list yet, so it's not like I can bring up my list and show how this one is wrong. My gut feeling is that I don't think I would put Monsters, Inc. or Reservoir Dogs in the top five. I don't think I would. <clears throat> Not that I dislike Reservoir Dogs. I like it. There's just other roles I think I would put above it. And Monsters, Inc., I think it's a bit overrated personally. Um, wow. Um, I don't dislike it. You know, it, it, I think Monsters, Inc. would still be in my top 20, Steve Buscemi. Uh, but I like a lot of his other roles. And, and for me... Not seeing Trees Lounge in the top five does not represent my taste. Number Trees, 14 on the list, Trees Lounge. Yeah, I, I'd put it at, at minimum in the top 10, possibly in the top five. But again, I haven't sat with this idea long enough to have my own list ready to go. So I guess I should be nice to whatever AI put this together for Looper because, uh, you know, I haven't done the work myself. So maybe I shouldn't be too critical. But, for you know, my gut reaction, Doug, is that those two movies are a little higher than they should be. Liam, I'm going to to uh, to uh, surprise you with a question. Do it. Which is, of all the movies that we've covered on How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, a podcast devoted to the life and work of actor Steve Buscemi, what is the best? Or let us be, let's open it up a little bit more and make sure that it's not as controversial. What was your favorite? I mean, it's important to note, Doug, that because we talked about it, I have mostly forgotten it because I try to sure. forget interacting with you as much as possible. But... That being said, hmm, I'm inclined to lift up uh, both Trees Lounge and In the Soup, but I suspect I'm forgetting something important. You know what I'm saying? Just going to throw out a couple of names here. Okay. King of New York. Ooh, Mystery yeah. Train. In the Soup, certainly, we you just mentioned. Big yeah. Fish. Yeah. Desperado. Con I, Air. Oh, okay, okay, okay. By what measure are we putting Desperado? I mean, it's on it's on this Chevy list. Movies. That's I know, I know. It's on this list. I think it's in the twenties. Uh, so I mean, they included that it. Make, that doesn't make any sense to me. Hey, a lot of these movies. I mean, like King of New York is just he's got a bigger part in Desperado than he does in King of New York. That's fair. That is fair. If we're just saying he's in the movie, King of New York is pretty high up there, man. That's one of my favorite, you know, movies generally speaking. Um, but you know. Uh, I don't know, man. This is hard. I, so I mean, it's funny because if you start talking about really small parts, then you could say Pulp Fiction, where he shows up for one right. scene, exactly. right? Or you could exactly. start talking about several Coen Brothers movies, including the one that we're going to be covering on the very next episode of this show. Mm -hmm. I very much enjoyed uh, Mystery Train, which I was unfamiliar with before we covered it. So I think that might make it in the top 10 for me. Uh, but you're just asking me about favorite ones that we've covered. It's really hard for me not to say Trees Lounge because I, I was obsessed with it prior to us covering it. But I think that's a little that feels like cheating to me. So I'm inclined to say maybe a tie between uh, In the Soup and um, 
what was the other one you chose? Oh, Mystery Train. I think Filmhouse Fever. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, thank train. you. Uh, <laughs> and, well, and, and you know, I'm also not counting The Death of Stalin, which is another movie I loved before we covered it. Mm, no. <laughs> yeah, Mystery Train. I'm going to go with Mystery Train. All right. I don't even know what you came up with. That's that your number one? Is that what you're saying? You asked me what my favorite was. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to go with Mystery Train, though. That's only because I'm discounting Trees Lounge. Because it's like, that was cheating. We started with a movie I knew, with a movie I knew I loved, right? And, uh, and Mystery Train is more of a movie I discovered together with you, you know? I mean, that's fair enough. Liam, over on thehollywoodreporter.com, there was an article called The Cast of Reservoir Dogs. Where are they now? The answer to uh, some of them are that they are dead. Uh, Lawrence Tierney sure, and yeah. Chris Penn no longer with us. Um, and probably <laughs> Edward Bunker, probably some other people as well. But they also list Steve Buscemi as one of the people who are in that film. And they do like a little summary of everything he's been up to since appearing in Reservoir Dogs, which is a majority of his film career. <laughs> it's quite a bit of stuff all compressed together. This might surprise you. He had memorable film roles, including Desperado, number one listed. What? So I guess... <laughs> Con Air, Armageddon, Ghost World, Big Fish, and the Death of uh, uh, Death of Stalin. Frequent collaborator of the Coen Brothers, having appeared in Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, Hudsucker Proxy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It also mentions that he got uh, an Emmy for a web show that he did, which I think I remembered this, but I'd forgotten. AOL made a web show called Park Bench, where Steve Buscemi interviewed celebrities, and this is back in like 2014, 2015, and he won an Emmy for it. Uh, and we haven't ever talked about it, and we certainly haven't covered it, but maybe in some of the upcoming episodes, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll check out some of these episodes. They're only like 10, 15 minutes long. And some people, very interesting people, get interviewed, including um, Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, <laughs> Gilbert Gottfried, Jim Jarmusch, Mark Boone Jr., lots of people that we have recognized or have, have mentioned on this show previously. So yeah, we'll maybe check that out in the future. Um, Liam, who's your favorite cast member of Reservoir Dogs? Jesus. Um... I'll just go with Harvey Keitel. I don't know that that's true, but I'll say Harvey Keitel. I like I like Harvey Keitel. He's a pretty good actor. I love. Don't you think? I no, I love Harvey Keitel. I just saying he's my favorite. It's just because when you say Reservoir Dogs, my brain goes to Buscemi, uh, Keitel, and uh, the uh, what's his name? Michael Madsen. Tim Roth. Tim Roth. Tim oh yeah, Roth. Michael Madsen. Yeah, right, right, right. He, when he's cutting the ear and stuff. Yeah, I'm still gonna go with Keitel. I'm still gonna go. I'm still gonna go with Keitel. Very, very fair. You know who I'm going to say? Yeah. Steve Buscemi. <laughs> <laughs> Liam, we're here today to talk about the 2001 film Ghost World, uh, based, on a, based on a comic book, a uh, comic series, but, uh, but a comic book certainly as collected by the great Daniel Klaus. I prefer uh, to call them graphic novels, Doug. Yeah, well, he doesn't. He doesn't like it being called graphic novels, and that was a big faux pas on your part. I don't care what he likes. So this is, <laughs> I, this uh, is about my reputation, that is. Liam, before we get into talking about the film, both of us have gone ahead and read the collected Ghost World comic by Daniel Klaus. Before you review the movie, tell us your thoughts on the comic book. I mean, to be fair, I have mm-hmm. read it a few times. I just <laughs> la di da. I just went. In, in fact, the the big issue for me was could I find my copy before we were going to record because I couldn't remember where it was in my house. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I've read it a few times. I honestly read it before the movie came out, 
um, because I uh, was familiar. So cool, and you're so with no, it. No, because I was familiar with Daniel Klaus, but I had not read it, and I heard the movie was coming out, and I thought, oh, I better read it before the movie comes out. And yet, despite the fact that I have read it a few times, the movie kind of eclipses it in my mind. Um, and so, rereading it for this recording, I was one struck by, despite the absence in a certain way of the Steve Buscemi character, right? He just shows sure. up for a very brief thing. I was actually more surprised, Doug, by all the similarities yeah. between the film and the comic book, and yet how some of those similarities were recreated without the same context. So you yeah, had exactly. the same gag, but in a different scenario. And honestly, I was that much more impressed with the movie after having read the comic. That being said, my memory was that the comic was not one of my favorites by him and on this reading i don't know i had a bit of a new appreciation for it i think because unlike when i read it before and i thought of it as one piece in fact you were right to correct me because it's not a graphic novel right these appeared as serialized short form comics in another Mm -hmm. thing and i hadn't thought of it that way when i read it and reading it this way that was very present in my mind that these had actually been separated over a longer period of time and i realized how difficult it must be to try to find a through line yeah. through something that you were making without ever intending it to have a through line let alone a climax and then i felt impressed because i felt like the way he wrapped it up was actually very good um and and i felt honestly a little more after having watched the movie and then read the comic a little more compassion for enid now granted that's also because I'm a 43-year-old man, <laughs> and so that, that I have a distance from that uh, personality type, uh, from that from who she is. I feel a distance from that, and I feel a sure. little bit more compassion, and we'll talk about that with the movie too. But in the comic, I think we get a, little, uh, we get a lot more unpleasantness, I think, even than we do in the movie, and yet I found myself less judgmental than certainly when I first read it, which isn't to say I didn't enjoy it when I first read it, but I thought the movie did a lot more for me. I think that the movie softens the character a little bit, but not by changing their actions so much. Yes, It's just, I think, spending so much time in a chronological fashion and seeing her kind of disappointments and sadness within it, it just makes that character a little bit more human in a way that when you're reading that comic book, sometimes... She feels like a symbolic of a kind of person at that time. It also must be interesting for you because you read it. I didn't read it at at the time that the movie came out. But when that movie came out, and these comics were still a few years old, but they were definitely still felt contemporary, but now they feel like a period piece, right? It feels like a very much of an era that we both lived through. And not only lived through, in the context of Enid in the comic book, She's like the same age as you, basically, right? And and not that far off from my age. It says that she was born in 79 in it. Uh, so, I mean, these are characters that <laughs> kind of have aged along with us. So we have, you know, particular insight outside of the fact that we were not teenage girls in the mid-90s and that I grew up in fucking backwater <laughs> locale on an island in fucking Canada. But, you know, there's stuff we recognize in it that maybe someone just coming at it for the first time in 2022 might not recognize as being of that era. I agree. A lot of it felt very familiar. In fact, the comic feels much more situated in time than the movie does, which I honestly think helps a little bit with the movie. And I think Mm -hmm. adds to the impact of the ending of the movie. I think um, the ending of the comic, though romantic in a certain way, is a little less abstract, whereas the ending of the movie feels like we're really going into a kind of of um, 
magical realism environment. Uh, I will say, though, the other big difference that we should mention is in the movie, um, her friend, Rebecca, played uh, by Scarlett Johansson, has less of a presence because Very we much spend so. so much time with Enid and with Seymour. And in the comic, you think that actually would help the character. Uh, and I guess it does. But we also see a lot more of the ways that they are very unkind to each other in a much sharper way. Yeah. Um, and I found myself thinking that there's less of a main character bias to Enid in the comic, even though I think by the end you could argue that uh, uh, Becca has subsided and Enid has become the focus of – we but get when you see that, when you see the poster for the movie, it's the two of them. And when people think of the movie, even though Enid might be the first person you think of, it certainly feels like almost like, nah, I mean, it's not a buddy comedy, but you know what I mean. They feel right. like they're both the, at the center of it. When, but yeah, she's when you re- way less present in the, in the actual unveiling of, you know, in the way the movie actually works itself out, yeah. you get less of her than you think you would. Though she's not unimportant, you know, like she matters. It's just in the comic, it's a lot more back and forth. And, Really, it's what separates the last few chapters of the comic is the way that it starts to focus on Enid. But um, but I really felt reading the comic like, ooh, I actually think uh, in some ways these characters are more realistic and therefore more endearing, but less realistic because we see them be much crueler to each other than they are in the movie. <laughs> well, that might be more realistic depending on your perspective. Oh, no, what? I'm saying more realistic, less endearing. You oh, know, I like, see. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, of course. It, it, in their react, they, they are endearing in the comic because they are so real. And I think that was actually the appeal is like, oh, this is how my friends talk. Like, this is a, this is how people actually talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Granted, this is a population in the mid-90s. I, I don't know if that's true anymore. But at the time, it felt very real. In the movie, I think there's a little less reality. But also, the characters, though still flawed, I think are actually slightly more endearing in a certain way. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's how it felt. I mean, I don't think you can be wrong on that. That's very much an opinion type thing. But I sure. also think that that's a very common opinion and one that I share. I, th- I actually think that the movie, uh, I, I don't really care about the whether it aged better or not, but I just think that it really encapsulates a lot of the same stuff that the comic does, but also adds another dimension to it, including that dimension that has Steve Buscemi in it. Uh, and it makes me prefer it. And uh, maybe that'll change over time. But as of this moment, I feel like I prefer the movie, which might give away our opinions on it, but maybe not. Let us take a break. When we return, 2001's Ghost World. Hey, hey, what you think you're doing? Shut up that damn noise. Rock and roll, baby. Freedom of speech. <laughs> that guy rules. I can't believe we made it. We graduated high school. How totally amazing. I can't help but feel I had some small part in how you turned out. (sighs) Sometimes I think I might be going crazy from sexual frustration. You just hate every single guy on the face of the earth. That's not true. I just hate all these extroverted, pseudo-bohemian losers. You guys up for some reggae tonight? Do you have any other old records besides these? Seymour does. Who does? Oh, uh, him. He's the man with the records. What, are we in slow motion here? Come on, what are you, hypnotized? Have some more kids, why don't you? John Pehechan, who? Gina Asan, who? 
I'm allowed to place one student from your graduating class for a full one-year scholarship, and I took the liberty of submitting your name. This could be a really great thing for you. With only the plan of moving in together after high school, two unusually devious friends seek direction in life. As a mere gag, they respond to a man's newspaper ad for a date, only to find it will greatly complicate their lives. It's Ghost World from the year 2001, directed by Terry Zweigoff, the director of the wonderful documentary Crumb, uh, which certainly echoes in this film as well, as well as Bad Santa and Art School Confidential. Very interesting Gentlemen, uh, in recent years, he's taken to appearing on podcasts and doing interviews, and he is extremely honest about his feelings of his time in Hollywood. If you want to hear someone really tear into Billy Bob Thornton, Terry gives no fucks in regards to that. Written by Terry Zweigoff and Daniel Klaus, and of course based on Klaus's graphic novel, I said it now, his comic book Ghost World, which appeared from June 1993 to March 1997, very much in that sweet spot of our mid to late teens, Liam. And starring a wonderful cast, including Thor Birch as Enid Kolsla, Scarlett Johansson as Rebecca Doppelmeyer, Steve Buscemi, of course, as Seymour, as well as Brad Renfro, Ileana Douglas, Bob Balaban, other familiar faces pop up as well, including Pat Healy. We'll talk about some of them coming um, coming up in just a little bit. Uh, according to director Terry Zweigoff, Steve Buscemi was so uncomfortable playing the role of Seymour that whenever shooting was finished for the day, he would immediately change his clothes so he could look completely different uh and i wonder if that kind of echoes in his discomfort when we see him in this movie this is a man who's very uncomfortable in his own skin liam we've already talked about your experience with the comic book but what i also want to start with before we get into your feelings on the movie generally is how have your feelings changed between seeing this movie back in 2001 when you were again very close to the age of the people involved and now being an old bastard who's fallen apart as we've already <laughs> gotten into yeah. uh, in 2022 how has how your feelings changed on this movie that's actually a very good question doug i think um i've enjoyed the movie consistently like i i liked it when it came out i really enjoy it now and i'll get into why in a little bit but i think when i first saw it it was not a pure i love this movie right i was i think the way a few people are a little put off by the fact that these characters were so familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, I knew people that were kind of like this, maybe not exactly like this, but were a bit like this. So I think that was always a little bit of a complication. And it, it didn't make me like the movie less, but I did think, like, is this okay? You know, I wonder how the people I know who are like this feel about this movie. Do they feel mocked? And is that all right that I don't care in some ways? You know what I mean? Like sort of negotiating that a little bit. And then when I found out how much this movie mattered to people who identified with these characters, then I wondered if it, maybe the movie was a celebration of cruelty, of, of, yeah. of you know, the more negative aspects. Now, of course, as an adult, I realized that's not true. There's an arc. It's it's The characters are critical of themselves, right? The, this is a story about people who – don't love themselves that's I, I think that's more obvious in the comic book but absolutely like said, it is that's a very that's a, a well observed point yeah. they definitely are more openly openly um self-loathing self-loathing but also aware of how other people view them and kind of obsess over it more right. in the comic right. right i think it's a little more subtle in the movie which maybe is better actually in some ways as a storytelling device but it, you know i had read the comic so I should have maybe recognized that a little bit more. I don't know that I was as concerned with story. I was more concerned with, like, is it funny? I've always thought it was funny. Is it kind of weird in a way that it doesn't feel forced? You know, I think 
uh, you know, this came out in 2001. I was in college. I was starting to get into more artistic films, but I did have anxieties that maybe things were forced artistic, if that makes sense. Like that there was a pretense to things that maybe was not real. And this didn't feel that way. It felt like a, like a, um, uh, abstract in, in small ways, but uh, definitely a realistic representation of certain experiences. And yet it also felt kind of out of time, you know, like it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel as grounded as the comic book does in a specific moment. And in fact, in college, while I knew people who acted like these folks and who reminded me of these folks, um, this idea that there was this kind of um, vague hipster who would put on different identities for funsies, right, and sure. sort of went through things, that was actually a little less common, I think, in 2001. Uh, and this movie, I think, meant a lot to the people who considered themselves cool at the time, but I don't know that stylistically they, they identified with Enid as much as they probably did in 1994 or 1995, right? Sure, but and, there's something obviously universal about yes. this relationship, right? Because yes. people even now still connect with these characters very strongly. Oh, 100%. But I, but I do also think um, one of the things I love about the movie, but I also think is interesting, is that this as uh, – well, I guess you said this already, but I want to reiterate it. This was the last moment this movie could be made because yeah. so much in the world was about to change. And I think specifically of the internet, I feel like um, as much as there is something for a certain generation of people, I'm not convinced that Gen Z would understand Enid actually. I'm not sure that they would. And I know that a lot of younger people uh, would have trouble understanding Seymour because – I'm not convinced that having extreme interests is as alienating now as it is for Seymour in the movie, right? Yeah. Um, mm. And and in fact, um, the way that she is fascinated by the fact that Seymour knows all these things, that actually means less to people now because I think it's possible to casually learn more than a casual observer would have known before. You know, I, I uh, famously I have a friend who I love a lot, uh, but who I would always find frustrating when I worked with him because in the middle of meetings, he was always looking at his computer. And I knew he wasn't ignoring us, quite the opposite. But it was frustrating to me because other people didn't know that what he was doing was looking up everything anyone said. He didn't know what it was on Wikipedia, everything, right, constantly. Right. And so in every meeting, the man seemed like he knew what the fuck he was talking about, Doug, and he didn't half the time. Oh, half. 90% of the time, he had no idea what the fuck he was talking about, but he could listen to you and read at the same time, and so that he would be quoting the Wikipedia article, and most people didn't know. They didn't fucking know, Doug, and so he just seemed really knowledgeable, and all he was was someone who could do two things at once, and so like – um I remember feeling very frustrated about that at the moment. This was we worked together, you know, more in the in the in the mid 2010s, right? Or early 2010s actually. Um and now I think that's just common. Everyone just assumes like you're not required to know weird things, but if you want to know weird things, like take 20 minutes and you'll know whatever the fuck you want. Like and you can, it's, and it's not hard to find a community around those weird things. Yeah, exactly. Like you don't have to feel as isolated and as almost doomed as Seymour does. Uh, but that sounds like a criticism of the movie. It, I don't mean it to be one. I love this movie. Uh, I just think like my view now is I see more of the ways that it's a little bit trapped in a moment, but I also see the ways in which it's um, a little bit timeless too, because some of its cultural reference points are actually even detached from the year it came out, let alone yeah, now, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very much so. So now that we've gotten through that a little bit, 
what was your experience with this most recent viewing? Did you still enjoy it? Do you feel like it holds up or it does it speak to you in a different way? Well, it's, it definitely speaks to me in a slightly different way because, uh, as I said, that, that analysis of culture is about to change, uh, Enid is in a way less of a of an enthusiast, let's say, uh, or people would say now geek. She's less inclined towards obsession than Seymour is, but she's interested in his obsession and she does see similarities between them. That's part of her fascination. I don't know if I picked up on that as much. I, f- I felt like her interest in him was more driven by pity when I was younger, that what makes her care about him is just the fact that she judged him and then realized that there was more there and then felt bad for him. She that, that it was a story almost entirely about empathy. I don't know that that's true now. I think there's more between them than I recognized at first. And in fact, there's some feeling from her that maybe he is not just her fascination, but her future as well. Yeah, and absolutely. so I, I think there's a little bit of that haunting going on there. Um, I also think I notice now stuff that I wouldn't have noticed then, like – um, I think a lot of this movie is universal. There are a number of moments that are a bit regrettable now <laughs> yeah. that I don't know I would have cared about then. Um, but they don't ruin the movie in any way. They're, 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 I, I would only bring them up to younger people for whom they've been so long since people used some of these words or acted in some of these ways that they might be a little horrified, right? And I, I just want to be like, no, this was a thing, you know? Now, granted, that doesn't mean they're totally alien. Lots of people are still like this. But I sure. think it's a little less – We there's a little bit more sensitivity now around some of these things than there was then. That being said, it's still amazing. I'm really – interested in the ways that um it does manage to feel a little bit out of reality while still resonating with things that feel very real i'm still fascinated by the way the movie has uh, transitioned this character of becca and really showed us the way that the world is sort of changing her that in order for her to continue as a as a human she is conforming and there's a bit of a humor about that but I also think there's a bit of a sympathy there that, I don't know, maybe Daniel Close didn't feel in 1993, but I think he definitely fell, felt in helping write this script now. Uh, and I also uh, am impressed, you know, thinking about it compared to the comic, the ways that I, uh, you know, think that probably Terry Zweigoff brought a lot of himself, I, you know, maybe to the character of Seymour, but also to the ways that this movie resonates uh, from his work on Crumb and the ways that Crumb yeah. influenced his life. I mean, literally in the fact that Crumb's daughter did a lot of the art for this, sure. but I think also uh, abstractly, some of the themes that might have been still on his mind, even this far away from the making of Crumb, are kind of resonating in this movie a little bit. And I think it's interesting, right? Um, um, and I, one last thing, the the ways that Seymour as an enthusiast of the past is maybe not as equipped as he should be to deal with the horrors of the past. Absolutely. Um, I, yeah, there's a part in it where he he like he's obviously been giving her the impression that he prefers the past or he thinks yes, that the past yes. is better, and then she confronts him directly. She's like, "What? Do you really think it's better in the past?" And if he thinks about it, he just takes a moment to think. He's like, "No, I guess things are better now." But right, he he for for someone like him, <laughs> whether he grew up in the 50s or the 80s or the 2000s, the differences wouldn't be so significant compared to the people that he is enthusiastic about. All the blues musicians that he listens to. Right, one hundred percent, and I think that is, uh, that is, I think more resonant now. I, I, I probably noticed that as a theme a little bit when when I first saw this movie, but just being a younger person, it means less. Whereas I, I think now, what's interesting is, 
this movie comes out in 2001, how many people do I know now who are looking back not to the jazz age, but to 2001? Yeah. Like, shit, remember then? Like, I could just, you know, tour in my emo band and make out with underage girls and no one judged me. Uh, they didn't know that you were an assaulter, man. That's why they didn't judge you, because you were living a lie. It's not that the world was better then, or I could get away with using words that, like, now I have to feel bad about. Like, I, I think some of the some of the ways that Seymour isn't dealing with his own interests in an honest way is reflected now in the ways people talk about the 80s, the 90s, and even the 2000s when this movie came out. I think that the movie also, you know, it recognizes the troublesome aspect of Seymour. 100%. Even while it has empathy for him. And I think that that's part of the reason why his character ends up where he does in this movie, which is, you know, not exactly... I mean, maybe a healthier place for him to be in some sort of therapy, even if his therapist seems to hate him. But we'll talk about that in just a little bit. I do want to say that I think this might be the ideal situation for the transfer of a independent comic into a feature film, right? Where the, the, the author of the comic and the person who created it is involved in the production, is involved in the writing, that... Uh, the material is given a little bit more dimension because it would need to to make make a, a script, but it has not the tone of it has not changed in a way that it makes it unrecognizable from its source. It is not just a direct adaptation, but it feels like the same thing. So when you even though you might have a preference between the comic or the movie, one you know reflects the other so closely that to love the movie is to love the comic to some extent and back and forth. And I really do think that it's, it is a superior adaptation. It really is wonderful. It's not really mentioned that often, I think, when it comes to like <laughs> great comic book adaptations. Sure, uh, though yeah. this is a movie that, that has gotten a lot of recognition, including uh, is in the Criterion Collection at this point. I mean, I have seen people put it on their lists when someone's like, what are the greatest comic book adaptations? But sure. because it's not considered comic booky in the way that yeah. superhero books are when you put it on your as your number one people just think you're copping out because what they yeah, want it's like hear, putting it's like putting death of stalin on your yes comic book all they want to know is which marvel movie like a lot of times now when people <laughs> people's like give me your top comic book movies they just mean of the mcu of recent memory <laughs> they don't even they don't even mean old mcu because we all want to pretend none of that other shit happened <laughs> yeah if you say blade they're like what <laughs> you mean the tv show do you think – so I, I was just mentioning a moment ago about the empathy that this movie has for these characters. And I think that you, what you said is was well observed, which is that this is very reflective of how people talked and acted in the early 2000s. When I saw this movie for the first time, I think I did not care much for the lead characters because I recognized both parts of myself in them. Yes. But in particular, I recognized other people in them. And those people I always thought of as being pretty cruel, right? And I, you know, I certainly had cruelty within myself at that age, as I think a lot of, of people do. But the idea that they could be cruel to everyone, it didn't really dawn on me that the ghost world of the title of this um, movie it reflects, you know, a lot of different things, including the fact that they're living their lives in a way that they're outside of everything, that they comment on the world as if they're not part of the world. And every time something touches them in that world, like when they go to that zine shop and people are mocking Enid and she like she hates it and, and 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 tries to get out of there because she's she's the target of the exact same behavior that she is, you know, putting on other people elsewhere that that is why they have to act that way because it's kind of a defense mechanism but you get to see the how that 
veneer is cracked throughout the movie. You get to see that there is real depth to these characters in a way that sometimes the, the, the comic doesn't feel like as much that you get to see, even though it, it does go to those places as well. And that's what I think I like most about it. I really feel it more watching it from the perspective of 2020. Too. And I like all these characters, all the ones in it, even Seymour, who does something in this movie that could be seen as unforgivable, uh, certainly from the perspective of now. But also, in the, I think even back then, it was frowned upon enough that this movie comments on it. Uh, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But I just want to ask you, how much do you think this movie wants us to empathize with Enid, Rachel and Seymour? Well, I think it benefits from not overly concerning itself, right? That, yeah. That... Um what it wants to represent is that the movie cares about those characters and it's up to you to decide how you feel about them. And you certainly can't say that it all works out, right? I mean, the only character who seems to have figured their things out to some extent is Becca. And that's through a process of alienation with her closest friend in the world. So it's not like uh it's not a clear win even for her. And honestly, uh, as she becomes less, cool by some people's measure she also i think becomes less cruel as well yeah. she becomes mm-hmm. less of that person which i think again is an, is a reflection of enid's all uh, sense of alienation from her and from the world around her but um i think that as a watcher uh I, you know there are narratives i won't say that there are none there are narratives that function better when you have a, a connection with the characters I don't know that it's essential, and I don't know that you need to be someone who spent their own time being cruel to people or spent their own time being alienated from the world to identify with this film. I think it's a narrative that is interesting and moving in and of itself, even if it does have those cynical notes. I got to say, though, Doug, like – I also think that this was is a lot more common than maybe we realize, which isn't sure. to say if you're out there and you saw this movie and you thought, oh, these people are weird to me, then I, I, I don't think there's something wrong with you or something like that. But in my experience, this was this was light in the ways that the people I knew harassed people around them. I mean, sure. In my world, it, 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 let's say not now, but growing up, I knew people who I thought were very cool, who thought it was very fun to find the kind of people it was okay to mistreat, that they they really enjoyed finding people that they could, for whatever reason, justify, you know, and, and maybe I say mistreat, you know, oftentimes it was just being, you know, emotionally or mentally cruel, not doing sure. something physically per se. Yeah, yeah, but, I gotcha. But, but, but I did know people who did things like that too. And I, and to be fair, you know, the, the things that kept me from being those people were, one, a sense that – uh I felt like even the people I hated and kind of thought deserved treatment like this, that that was not okay because I was stoked on Jesus. So like (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't necessarily nice to those people, but I thought, yeah, but I probably should be like, you know, it's kind of funny that that guy hit, got hit with a water balloon filled with piss, but I bet if the Lord was here, he'd say, no, that's not good. And so like, I think it's funny, but that's just part of me being not the best person in the world. That that's like that's the space I was in. The other part of it that I think is more real is being a little bit of a coward, right? And sure. what's funny is I think that's represented in the movie. If you're really paying attention, anytime there is even the slightest whiff of a consequence for their action, they are ready to back down or feel mm-hmm. bad about themselves. Right. These are not 
the 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 scary thing of teenagers is not just that they can be cruel it's that they can be cruel and also brave and it's the bravery i think anyone who has not learned yet how valuable other people are can be cruel for the sake of humor to various degrees i think a lot of people aren't cruel not because they're good people but because they're fucking cowards and they're afraid that something bad will happen if they do something and i say cruel let's just say unkind because sometimes you could to a lesser degree embarrass someone and it's not the end. You haven't ruined their life, you know, or anything, but you've treated them poorly for your own amusement. I think that's pretty common. It's the degree is often affected by the fear of consequences more than it is compassion until you get old enough to realize, oh, wait, all of these people matter. And I really shouldn't be treating them like playthings in my own playground. Uh, but again, I think the movie deals with that by showing us that none of this is coming from a sense of power. It's not that they actually think they're better than all of these people. They're searching for some way to feel better because underneath, at least in Enid's case, and in the comic, I think that's more clear with Becca too, they're so unhappy. They're so unhappy mm-hmm. and they just don't know what to do about it and they can't figure it out. And as they start, you know, the comic really ends with them starting to figure it out. And I think that's sort of the hope of the movie as well, that maybe Enid is making a, a break with her past or making a break with her need to kind of blow things up as they become too real. I think that's one of the most magical aspects about one of the most uncomfortable parts of the film. When she makes this decision, and unfortunately Seymour makes this decision, and they cross a divide that I think should be respected, which is the gulf between their ages, the problem for Enid is not just the realization that this was gross. It's that (laughs) she suddenly feels intimate and vulnerable. And I think the movie allowing you to feel both things. On one hand, this was a bad idea for all the reasons that you would think it's a bad idea for an 18-year-old to sleep with a 40-year-old. It's a bad idea for a ton of reasons. But in the context of the film, you also realize that Enid thought this would be detached and casual. That's it. Right. And she's 100%. suddenly exposed by the fact that Seymour is a real person with real feelings. Well, guess what? That's the theme of the movie. Every time she realizes the theme of these the are real people. Is the theme of the movie, and it's also the main point of the instigating act of the main core of the movie. Yes, which is them finding this this ad in the magazine. Yes, this this the, uh, of from Seymour, who was looking for this person that he had this connection with, playing this very extremely cruel prank on him, and then once he shows up and they're there just to mock him and to be completely you know outside of it and and cold, and when they see him just sitting there and drinking his milkshake, they feel bad. They feel bad because this is a real human being and they're suddenly face to face with, with you know, instead of the idea of something, with the reality of it. And that, I think, is a lesson that's learned again and again and also a lesson that a lot of people learn when they're making that transition from high yes. school to real life, right? I mean, it, it kind of gets exemplified where uh, Rebecca is working at Starbucks, right? And, she, yeah. and, and Enid shows up and she's just ready to tear into everyone there. And Rebecca's just sick of it because she's like, I, these are people, I run into these kind of weird people all day. And at some point you just, you know, or she even like says, oh, that person's okay. Because she, she talks to them and she encounters them all the time. Right. But Enid she has a connection. Yeah. She has a connection. That's exactly it. And Enid has spent all of her time trying not to make a connection, including with people that she actually does care for and care about. Like, um, 
uh, Josh, right? Who she obviously does have feelings for. It's it's made a little bit more explicit in the comic. But like Josh is someone that she, she well, it's actually it's just as explicit in the movie, but nothing really happens with it. But like Josh is actually seems like maybe the one person that they should aspire towards, right? Someone right. who who does seem to have empathy for other people, recognizes when they're doing shitty things, and also seems to have some sort of comment on the world. That's one of the things I noticed about the comic as well. Is like Enid not only she thinks she's smarter than everyone else. But she also refuses to engage on the things that are important in her world to a certain extent. Yes, right? she, she doesn't want to engage with anything. Right. So yeah, really interesting. Um, and I'm glad that you've, I mean, we've explicitly said it now, so let's talk about it. When she sleeps with Seymour, that is, you know, for certain people, and I can understand it, that might be a bridge too far for any sort of sympathy for Seymour in the, in the context of this movie. I think the movie takes a pretty even-handed approach to it uh this is only a few years uh after american beauty which actually has you know shears thor birch in 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 cast even um and it isn't it isn't a movie that over overly sexualizes its characters generally but what do you think what what do you think we're supposed to take away from that outside of the fact that it kind of breaks the illusion of enid's ability to kind of walk without walk through the world without actually interacting with things I think it's supposed to represent that she has not fully accepted the humanity of Seymour. She's still right. trying to treat him like a fetish object, like an object yeah. of her own interest. And she hasn't dealt with his humanity. And the reality for me, and again, I'm not trying to be detached from the situation. It's inappropriate regardless. But Seymour is pathetic. And to be fair, all of the fucking uh, uh, predators and groomers are also pathetic. Yeah. But it's different because they are um, – they are self-aware of what they're doing and they're trying to get something. Seymour isn't trying to seduce her. He is just um, too pathetic to know this is a terrible decision. He should be self-aware enough to say no, right? Especially, I think if he was a full adult, if he was fully himself, and, and let's be clear, I think sometimes when people watch this movie, they think what's wrong with Seymour is his interests, right? Well, that's not true. He has these interests, they are interesting to him. They are interesting to Enid. They are obsessions. They maybe go too far, but they are a representation of his brokenness. They are themselves not the problem. And a much clearer uh, 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 expression of his actual problem is him not being self sort of uh, aware enough to realize, oh, wait, this is a terrible idea. She She's treating me as a solution to a whole other problem. And when this happens, it's not just inappropriate. It's like, I, I, I it's going to break me. You know, he thinks, oh, no, this is the beginning of us, like, being together, maybe. And sure. it's it's treated as a pathetic fantasy by someone who is not um, healthy enough to see how wrong that is. Uh, and and of course, um, it's more important for the story that for Enid, it's a sudden realization of where she's at and a right. sudden exposure of herself. Yeah. And I think the way it's played in the movie, she's so uncomfortable with her own vulnerability that it's hard to see Seymour as maybe as gross as we would see a different character in the same situation. Right. I was that that there's that scene that takes place at the bar. Where, yes. where he's watching that blues musician, and she tries to get him 
get get him interested in a woman who's also at the bar and she comes over and she's obviously not right for him in a lot of different ways but she says something like i love the blues and his immediate response is well this isn't actually blues now there, there's this and like he has to stop himself but that is so much a core of his character he's as much of an he like he's a real outsider right it's not right. just his interest it's just that he's a, a weird uncomfortable self-loathing guy and he hates himself and that is all wrapped up in these feelings that he has and that's why when she sleeps with him it breaks him entirely right i mean he becomes this maniac who's calling her constantly which is both sad and pathetic and also sort of recognizable in yes. you know it's just it's something that happens when you're when you are very immature, even at that age, which is no excuse that what he does, but like when you don't have a lot of connections in your life and you suddenly make one and you become desperate and, and it becomes everything to you. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, I have a little bit of Seymour, uh, sorry, a, a little bit of sympathy for Seymour in this, but I, only to a point as well. Well, I mean, regular. we, here's the thing. It's awkward because of her age, right? But right. age her up to 25, I think if he sleeps with a twenty-five-year-old, it's a it feels a little less gross. Result is the same; he's a broken yeah, result, man. Exactly, absolutely. You know, the difference is, uh, my guess is, a twenty-five-year-old woman, I would hope, uh, might have herself known enough that she'd say, "Whatever." If if I'm feeling anything right now, it's certainly not the right thing. So I'm going to walk away from this situation and not make this mistake. It's because they're both in a place. Uh, where they aren't in a position to make the right decision. But I hope audiences realize it's actually kind of, I mean, not that what they do is great, but it's okay that an 18-year-old doesn't have enough self-awareness to know they're making a really horrible decision. And it's one of many decisions she makes that are clearly not the right decision. It's fucked that a 40-year-old man is unaware of how fucked this decision is. He he just doesn't know where he's at. And that's just the reality. He's not living his life. And he hasn't been living his life ever really and so he doesn't really know what his life is about or what he's doing you know it's also interesting to think about whether terry zweigoff sees seymour as a self-insert of himself or i mean obviously reflective of his interests in a lot of ways he loves that kind of music he he obviously you know is of a similar age group i just wonder i mean that's an interesting element in this movie that's kind of unique to the movie separate from the comic especially sure. because seymour is kind of a non-entity comparatively in the comic uh did any of the supporting performances jump out at you uh we have Ileana douglas playing the art teacher in this yes. brad renfro the late brad renfro uh i think is quite good in this pat healy of course bob balaban as enid's father i think is really hilarious as well uh who who's who, who jumped out the most to you well i gotta shout out my man pat healy because i love him mm. and I, i'm sure that he is tired of people who know him? I mean, it probably happens less now because he's done a lot of things. But he, he, I, know, I mean, he's he's the better call Saul guy now for a lot yeah, of people. I'm right sure. Now. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. But there are definitely people who, prior to stuff like Better Call Saul, still remembered him from this. But I also bet it was an amazing experience to be a part of this movie. Sure. Uh, I gotta agree with you, Bob Balaban as the dad. You know, th this is a character, right? There's no the dad in the comic is not a character the way no. Bob Balaban is, right? <laughs> um, I I also. Uh, I also appreciate the woman, and I forget her name, who played uh, Steve Buscemi's uh, girlfriend. What is what is her name? Uh, Dana. Dana. Stacy Travis. Uh, I actually think Stacy Travis, and I think it's an underrated performance because her job is to be normal. And so maybe people yeah. don't think she's acting the way that some other people are acting. Right. But I think she nailed – like she is – yo, it's 2001 and we want you to be the most normal white lady you can be. 
she fucking nails it, man. Like all of the, all of the well-meaning cringe, what we yep. would call cringe now, which is, you know, funny because she's playing next to Steve Buscemi. The essence of embarrassment, his character, his <laughs> uncomfortableness distilled down into its essence. But she has to somehow also be relatable as like your aunt, but still kind of cringy too. And I think she fucking nails it you know I her think trying to get him to dance in her apartment yes. right where he's like it's like probably on the list of things he wants to do in this entire world dancing is like dead fucking last and she's like come on let's do it let's dance and he's it's also so fucking good it's great it's really terrific yeah and it, again it, it feels like it exists in a real place like just off center enough but very yes. recognizable yes. that it that it really works with that character and also you know she's she seems sincerely good like he his situation when he put this 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 personal ad in and he already knew her what she looked like like it, he hit the jackpot of exactly what could have been something really special and important to him but of course he he a she would require him to make certain adjustments because even though she sure, uh, yes. takes his takes his interest seriously she doesn't share them in any way whatsoever right. um but also you know she doesn't she could never understand him in the way that he thinks Enid could understand him. Well, but even th- though that's unrealistic, I think as well. I think he's also supposed to be, uh, or he, she's also supposed to be a mirror to the members of the audience who might be over-identifying with Seymour, right? In the sense that it's not just Enid, right? Enid is jealous because she had an object of fascination. Seymour is like the bat mask, right? Like he is a living embodiment of many of her brief interests in the world, but he's a real person. He's not just her object. He's like the hair dye, right? Absolutely. And that's that's where her jealousy is coming from. It's this feeling of that she no longer controls him to some extent. However, um, there's also this sense in which the audience who is maybe over-identifying with Seymour is also seeing the changes that this that Dana is making in his life and might themselves be feeling like, yo, I wouldn't let some girl change me. I wouldn't put those jeans. You know, they might be overly thinking uh, sympathy towards Seymour and not realizing that this is just an opportunity for him to meet someone in the middle. He's never had to do that. He's never had to temper himself and his strong opinions Ever. And I think we're supposed to see the dark side of that, for example, when they're going to the concert and there's a family in the road and he fucking loses his mind yeah, that absolutely. this family is in the road as if they have no right to make him late to see his blessed blues musician at this bar in one of the worst concert situations you could possibly be in, right? Yeah. I think I think what we're supposed to see in Dana, right, is someone at first who maybe also makes some of the audience, though probably not all uncomfortable and over time we realize oh shit no that was his chance that was his chance and he what the reason it falls apart is not dana she does nothing you know you know i guess maybe she could be a little more understanding or whatever but in reality she does nothing wrong he blows his fucking life up because he's not ready for it i think that's an important part of the movie and it does something not just in general for the narrative but i bet a certain part of the audience is like oh like because they were too connected to this fucking guy you know yeah 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 i mean it it, there's probably a certain part of the audience that when he goes in and breaks up with dana they think oh like 
that's obviously a terrible idea. Like him yes. going in there, yes. and, and I mean everything about that is is like, what are you fucking thinking? But you know, there's always probably a few people watching who are like, oh, I get it. You know, <laughs> people who who maybe fit into that category a little bit too well. I want to talk a little bit about the ending of this movie. Very controversial. Well, maybe not controversial, but a movie that a lot of people have different interpretations of the ending. One of the interpretations that people take, um, and for those who don't know, there is a character in this movie that is constantly an older gentleman who is constantly waiting for a bus. He's like a uh, a bit of local color that the characters consistently see. At one point near the end, we actually see him get on the bus that should not exist. And then we finish the movie with Enid getting on that same bus, uh, which is also reflective of something that she said earlier, which is that, you know, her dream is to just get on a bus or just go off to a new place and, and you know, live where so- no one else knows her. Uh, to Basically to be a ghost in a different place, I guess. What is your interpretation of the ending of this movie? Or does it matter what your interpretation of the ending of this movie is? I mean, I I don't think it matters, honestly. I don't think I. Need I didn't to... say it by the way, but a lot of people's interpretation is that she killed herself at the end. But yes. even though the the both the Terry's Wygoff and Daniel Klaus said they certainly didn't have that in mind, but they've heard it so many times at this point that they at least have to take it seriously as an interpretation. Well, and I, I it's not that I think that interpretation doesn't have a certain logic to it. I think the idea that you need to decide what the bus means. Is not yeah. the way to watch a movie. Personally, I, I just don't think it matters, right? Like my interpretation is that it's a it's a moment where we have stepped through to something somewhat magical. In fact, I think that the bus that she gets on in the comic is meant to be as uh, magical realism as the buses in the movie, but it's more effective in the movie because it's right. more of a break. But the whole thing. The whole movie – I mean one of the characters I should have mentioned that just does it for me is Doug, right? The mullet man in the, in the thing. And Doug – Klaus Klaus has – throughout his comics always has a couple of times and a couple of characters that kind of – you know what they feel like, Doug? They feel like when Godard wants to remind you that you're watching a movie, he sure. does something to like be like, this is fake. What you're watching is fake. He like points it out on purpose in certain ways. Every once in a while, Klaus just has someone where you're like, oh, we're not in the – we're in the real world, but we're not in the real world. Um, I feel like there's a lot of that in this movie, and this moment is a representation of a moving on. And in that way, it – I wouldn't say it's a Rorschach test, but it does often reflect the viewer's feelings on what she's moving on to. Sure. And so the idea that she's moving on from this mortal coil is not in its own way compelling, but it's not the same as saying uh, this is what's actually – you know what it's not, Doug? It's not the people who are like in The Shining, uh, Kubrick is showing us that he faked the moon landing, right? Right. If you're looking for that level of interpretation, you're fucking up, man. That's not what it's about. But if you want to say, you know, when I think about this character, I don't think about her growing up. I don't think about her breaking with her past. I don't think about her starting a new life uh, where she doesn't feel as much trapped and in a rut. What I think about is everything's gone wrong and what other choice does she have but to end it? Now, personally, that's so dark. I don't know what to think of that. Like, I I just – my brain never went there until you pointed that out and I I see a logic to it. I just personally think that's maybe a really rough way to see – a, a moment that's supposed to represent letting go, you know, and, and being willing to take a chance, you know? Yeah, I mean, it kind of, I mean, I could see it if it didn't have that scene with Seymour in hospital where she, like, shows him the drawings 
and they reconnected and he shows he doesn't blame her for everything that happened. Right. And, you know, and so he his story ends, you know, he, he has to move in with his mother and he has a therapist. He is no longer connected to her in any way. And Becca is no longer connected with her in any way. They've made a decision that they're basically having a break from their friendship even. Um, so her getting on the – when you cut those ties, I never saw that, you know, even when I saw it in the early 2000s as, oh, she's cut those ties so she has nothing left. It To me, it was like a freeing thing, right? Now right, she's free yes. to, to, do, to, to live a life that maybe is more true to her where she can connect with the world in some way. And, and it – it, it especially is the case because she says it's her dream, right? She says that that's what she wants to do, and she is probably at that point when she says it isn't brave enough to do it by herself. Well, she cuts everyone out so she can now do it by herself, and she does it. So, I mean, to me, it's like that. There's a positivity to that ending that some people just don't take from. It. I think it's also way darker than the rest of the movie, right? Like I'm thinking about in comparison to the comic, right? Like, so she loses her scholarship opportunity in the movie because of her bad decisions. You know, she should not have stolen this, th- you know, taken this thing from Seymour and f- pretended it was a piece of art as a way to sort of like kind of take take the 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 piss out on on yeah. her teacher. Uh, that's how she blew up her thing or if she had shown up at the art thing and maybe been able to come up with the bullshit reasons that she came up for her teacher, maybe that would have helped, but she yeah. made a series of bad decisions that blew up. In the comic, she just doesn't pass a test. She yeah. has an opportunity to take a test, and if she does well on the test, she'll get a scholarship to a college she couldn't possibly afford being someone who is lower middle class, and uh, and she's just not smart enough. She just doesn't do well enough on the test. That's but, way But more... doing the test I, it creates in her brain a world where yes. what would my life look like if I passed yes. it, and when she doesn't pass it, then that world doesn't just fully go away, right? It gives right. her an idea of what her life could be. Totally. But the the reality of her not passing the test for me, Doug, is actually a much crueler decision sure. than a series of zany bad decisions I made put me in a situation. Because to me, you could then have a future where you don't make those zany bad decisions that you made to put yourself in this situation. In the comic, it does open up the possibility of a different world. But this feeling, and, and maybe this is just my experience as a uh, underachieving, gifted kid who was too poor to do a lot of things, when she just doesn't pass the test, that hurts in my heart in a way that, that when she doesn't get the thing for the art school, the movie, I think, ah, yeah, that makes sense. Like, it's just, it doesn't have the same... Um, wait for me and maybe that's just my own experience of feeling like uh, i don't get cool <laughs> opportunities that smart rich kids get uh let's talk about steve Buscemi as seymour in this movie it's a very brave performance in a lot of ways because Agreed. he has to skirt that line of being likably schlubby which is something that steve Buscemi is very good at but also kind of uh, off-putting and self-loathing and kind of unpleasant what do you think of this performance I mean, I think it's great. I, I, I have nothing – I don't know that I have anything negative to say other than I have two concerns. One is for the role and that um, I do wonder if maybe Seymour is more endearing because it's Steve Buscemi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that you've said to me before and I, I, I don't know if that's true. Um, that, what I was saying just to give a little bit more context is 
people have so much, even at that time, have so many warm feelings towards Steve Buscemi as an actor that I feel like even when he plays real pieces of shit in movies, that people like that character. Like there's a like, like there's a likability on top of it, even if if it's the revoltingness that is likable in it. But I think that he's able to play this with a endearingness that other actors wouldn't necessarily be able to play. I think there's a there's a segment of the population that does not feel that way. That in fact, because of the roles he plays, they actually feel bad towards Steve Buscemi. All mm. you need is for someone to post like, remember when he did that fashion thing recently, right? Yeah. Some people are posting that going, there he is, the most beautiful, ugly man in the world, Steve Buscemi. I love him. And then there are just as many people who don't have the connection to the movies that he's been in that we do who go, the fuck are you talking about? Who is that and why is he awful? And I think that there is a segment of the population that because they have seen him in a couple weird roles here and there, don't have that same level of endearing feelings. The reality, though, is those people didn't see Ghost World. You know, Ghost World was very popular, but it was very popular with very specific people. Yeah, and there true. were a lot of people who didn't fucking see it. Uh, it was very successful for an art house film. Uh, and I think it has a long life because of how good it is. But it's not, you know, Con Air, right? It's yeah, not exactly fucking or Armageddon. <laughs> Armageddon, you know what I mean? So, I, you know, there's a mixed there's a mixed bag there. Uh, so I do wonder if maybe. Uh, an, an actor who was less immediately endearing might have given us a scene more that was more complicated for the movie. I don't know. Uh, my inclination is to say probably not. I, I still think he's the best actor for it. He puts an amazing performance. My other anxiety we've talked about too, which is that um, for some people, this is this is like the Steve Buscemi performance. This is like the one. This is They think mm-hmm. of this as his ultimate form. And for me... I kind of like scumbag Buscemi a little yeah, more. Yeah, yeah. I kind of like, you know, Fargo's a little extreme. I don't know if he needs to be quite that level of monstrous, you know. Uh, but Trees Lounge Buscemi, you know, ah, sure. he's splitting the difference there. He's he's pathetic, but he's also a ne'er-do-well. I don't know. There's something about that that I, I really like. Now, I don't want to limit him to all different flavors of creepazoid. Uh, I think we've now seen enough things where he doesn't have to play a creepazoid, but I do think he's very good at it. You know, not dissimilar from another actor that we've based the podcast on. He's very good when he's given opportunities to play these um, out of the norm, uh, dangerous or pathetic or some way uncomfortable characters. I think he brings something to it. uh, And I think that's great. I just, uh, I, I get a little, bummed when people see him primarily as different flavors of this uh seymour character i think that's unfair because i think he can have an edge and a sassiness that this character does not have and i think is more actually probably representative of his personality which i get the feeling is a little more snappy than seymour is you know seymour is a little laconic at times yeah it's funny that when seymour jumps into action kind of of um when he tries to um to to fight josh at the convenience store he looks completely out of his depth completely ridiculous doing it when other super semi characters even though in those exact same situations with those characters he they, the result might be the same he would look like he had more confidence going into it at the very least uh but this is just such a yeah schlubby character I like I like this version of Steve Buscemi. I mean, I like I I like all versions. To be honest, I like overconfident and underconfident to a certain extent. But I think you're right. I think some people see this as the prototypical Steve Buscemi role, while I tend to prefer things like his work with the Coen Brothers and um, 
and honestly kind of his weirdo roles as well where he's just playing just general oddball in all sorts of ways but i mean he has a lot of range and this was um this i think gave him credibility in the eyes of people who may not have especially you know coming off i mean this is only a couple of years removed from armageddon which itself was only a couple of years removed from con air he, he he was already a mainstream figure at this point and only a few years away from fargo as well i think this gave him an extra bit of credibility in a world uh, of people who were aware of him already but maybe had forgotten that hey this guy has some pretty significant chops yeah agreed um yeah i don't know i think this is this is uh, an important role obviously for his for his sort of um career as well in a lot of ways not that he wasn't known at this point but i think it it certainly established him as being able to do a movie like this and really he carries it in a lot of ways you know that that's not to denigrate thor birch and and scarlett johansson who i think are also really great but it is like he he does something in this that i think sort of helps the movie exist in the world Liam, on the next episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, we're going to continue the train of classics with a Coen Brothers movie, just uh, who I was just mentioning just a moment ago. The Coen Brothers' Barton Fink from the year 1991. Um, this is a movie that I love very much. I'm very much looking forward to revisiting it. There's a few Coen Brothers, Coen Brothers movies that we will end up talking about. This might be the one that's Maybe its reputation isn't as high or as talked about as some of the others, but this is still a beloved movie. Are you excited, Liam, for us to talk about Barton Fink? I am. It's one of the, I mean, I've seen it, but it's one of the Coen Brothers films I've returned to the least amount, not because it's bad, but because it it doesn't, it's not as easy as a watch as some of their other films. So I'm interested to watch it again. And to think about Steve Steve Semi in it because off the top of my head I don't really think of him in it I really only think of Totoro and uh, and uh, John Goodman John Goodman that's all I think about when I think about this movie and it's that's not fair there's a lot of people doing a lot of good work in the film so I'm excited to kind of think about it beyond those those two people. It'll be fun to revisit. I I also I have to be honest. I remember Steve Buscemi in it, but I don't think his part is particularly big compared to no, it's not. those two actors or Michael Lerner or even John Mahoney in it. But I mean, it's I'm I, look. It's never a bad time to talk about Barton Fink. If you listeners have not seen Barton Fink before, do not be put off by its title or the jokes that they made on The Simpsons about it. Uh, it is a very entertaining movie, and of course, it's the Coen Brothers. And I'm of the opinion that the Coen Brothers. They have movies that are different flavors of good, but no bad. Uh, that might be a controversial statement, but I've watched them all, so I can make that statement. Uh, Liam, if you want to check out more episodes of How Do You Do Fellow Kids or other wonderful podcasts under the Cinema Smorgasbord umbrella, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, if they head over to Cinepunks.com, that's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, they can get our latest episodes as well as a family of shows over there, part of the whole Cinepunks network, uh, whether that's Twitch of the Death Nerve, covering uh, psychotronic cinema, Tomb of Ideas, uh, focusing on Marvel horror comics, or uh, the Carnage Report, which discusses the latest and greatest in horror film news um, and and new films as well. Uh, There's all these shows over there that are worth checking out, as well as writing and merch and, and and stuff they can also find a lick a link there to the Cinep- uh, a lick huh a lick there they can also find a link there to the cinepunks patreon which sort of helps us exist in the world um cinepunks is on social media 
uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, as long as Twitter still exists, I guess. I don't know what's going to happen there. Uh, and we have a Discord. If you're interested in joining us on the Discord, where we discuss all manner of topics, both related to the podcast and just separate to just connect to people, uh, I would say shoot us an email, cinepunks, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X at gmail.com or message us on social media. Uh, Cinema Smorgasbord, we have our own website. And when you our go website. there, you'll mm-hmm. find the archive of all of the different topics that we cover, not just the uh, uh, How Do You Do Fellow Kids, focus on Steve Buscemi, but a whole list of uh, directors, actors, different kinds of movies, even one-off uh, fun episodes, uh, seasonal episodes as well. That's all at cinemasmorgasbord.com. And we're on Twitter, Doug, at cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G. Uh, and, you know, who knows if this will even be relevant by the time this episode comes out. But assuming Twitter still exists, you can find us there. We can. And you can find yourself there, Liam, at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. I'm on there as well under Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. Uh, if you like the sound of my voice, I recently did a guest stint on the podcast Under the Stairs. Every December, I do a roundtable on that podcast where me and the host Duncan McClash and Bo Ransdell we do a roundtable uh, covering the entire career of a specific director. And the, when I mentioned before about Barton Fink, a few years ago, we did every movie of the Coen brothers. We've done Terry Gilliam. Last year, we did William Friedkin. This year, we did the entire filmography of the great Michael Mann. Uh, so I spent five plus hours of a podcast talking about Michael Mann. Very recently, you can find that over at tputscast.com or just do a search for the podcast under the stairs. Uh, I think that's all I have to say. As Liam mentioned, yeah, reach out to us if you want to be on the Discord. If you are enjoying what you're hearing, why don't you leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice. But for now, we need to take a little break. We're going to be back very soon in the new year with 1991's Barton Fink. Good night, everyone. Night, night. पहचान हो जीना आसान हो जान पहचान हो